Let's pray out loud these words. Let's make them our prayer. God and Father of the Lord Jesus, speak to us now through your word. Open the eyes of our hearts to your truth and your grace. Transform us according to your word and by your spirit. Mold us into the image of Jesus. We give you our attention. We give you ourselves. Bring about your kingdom in us and through us, here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. So the word slave or slavery occurs 181 times in the Bible, beginning as early as chapter 9 in the book of Genesis, where Noah, upset with his youngest son Canaan for a transgression, declares that Canaan will forever be a slave of his older brothers Shem and Japheth. And from that time forward in various parts of the Old Testament, beginning in chapter 9 of Genesis, we see instances here and there around of slavery among the nations around Israel and in Israel among God's people themselves in different cultures, different contexts, different forms. And we should grieve every one of those for sure. Lord have mercy. And then fast forward to the New Testament. The Gospels never record Jesus teaching about slavery. The Gospels never record Jesus talking or interacting with a slave. And yet we know that the practice of slavery existed during Jesus' time. We see it in different parts of the New Testament. We saw it in, in different parts of the Roman world around the Mediterranean during and after the time of Jesus. And so as the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of his kingdom begins to spread throughout the world of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean, it inevitably comes in contact with the practice of slavery with people who are slaves, with people who own slaves. And a number of times in the Apostle Paul's letters, he makes reference to slaves among those to whom he is writing. And one of the most familiar of those instances occurs in the book that Paul, or the letter that Paul wrote, a circular letter to the church in Ephesus, a book that we now know today simply as Ephesians in the Bible. And in this circular letter, during the first half of that letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul explains the gospel. He talks about who Jesus is and what the gospel means in the world, how God pulled it about and why. In the second chapter of Ephesians, uh, chapters in the second half in chapters five, 4, 5, and 6, Paul talks about the application of the gospel in our ordinary lives, what it means to live out the gospel as individuals, as a church in our culture throughout the course of our lives, including the practical implications for each person's life, how the gospel is manifest in culture. And in that latter part of the letter we know as Ephesians, Paul used a fairly common literary device of the time called a house table, through which he addressed each of the members of an extended household, unpacking for them specifically what it meant to live out the gospel or for the gospel to be manifest in their lives. And Paul begins his house table in chapter 5, verse 21, with his overarching directive that will apply to all of the relationships in a household. And then he goes on to describe more specifically the nuances of how that directive or instruction applies to each member of the household, beginning with wives and then husbands, and then with children and their fathers, 
And then finally, with slaves and their masters. And his initial overall directive or command that will apply to all of these relationships in the household is found in chapter 5, verse 21, and goes like this. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit for one another out of reverence for Christ. All of you in an extended household, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that line this way. Out of respect for Christ, be courteously reverent to one another. And then Paul goes on to describe what such submission or courteous reverence toward one another looks like in real life for wives and then husbands. And then into chapter 6 for children and their parents. And then finally for slaves and their masters. And often when these latter verses about slaves and their masters are taught and preached today, teachers and preachers will pivot to speaking about the relationship between employees and their employers, between workers and their supervisors, because that in one stretch sense was who slaves and masters were in the context and the culture of Ephesus at that time, sort of. And since we do not live today in a culture in which slavery of any sort is openly or legally practiced, and because Bible expositors today are looking for relevant application, often the following passage, when it is taught, is applied to the relationship of employees and their employers for the sake of relevance. But today I want us to hear first these verses in their first century context and then we will talk about how they were read for centuries in the church and particularly in the American context beginning in the 1600s. Again, from Ephesians starting in chapter 5 verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then jumping to chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. And while the institution and the practice of slavery in Ephesus was categorically and completely different than the horrendous reality of slavery in what would become and what did become the United States, and particularly in the South, during the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, what is clearly lacking admittedly in Paul's teaching is a crystal clear condemnation of slavery across the board. Masters are told not to threaten their slaves and to not show favoritism to them. Remember that the Lord is in that relationship. And therefore, somehow, in some way, they were to submit themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And yet what was lacking was a clear and definitive condemnation of, the slave, of slavery by the Apostle Paul and the Holy Bible. And what, what, and what that meant to Christian people 1,600 years later on a new continent, people who at least in theory were guided by the Bible and particularly the New Testament who saw that as authoritative was that if the Apostle Paul didn't condemn slavery in every form outright but rather seemed to accept it, then neither must they condemn the practice of slavery themselves and as a society. And so in the year 1619, when a Dutch trading ship landed off the coast of Virginia, quote, 20-odd Negroes on board they had, they were looking to unload their stolen goods. They found buyers because, after all, the Scriptures did not explicitly forbid the practice of slavery. They said to themselves, they justified to themselves. However, context is important. Uh, on Monday morning, I walked with my youngest daughter to her elementary school to pick up a bag of materials that her new teacher for the school year had prepared for each of the students in that class. And when we got home, she excitedly began to pull out the materials, pulled out a stack of papers and pamphlets and flyers and things. And on the top of those, maybe the most important, was a piece of paper that declared, context matters. And I thought, oh, that's good. This is going to be a good year. Context matters. Let's say that together from home. Context matters, yes. And context has always mattered. And understanding the context of Paul's reference to slavery in Ephesians is important because the context of slavery in the Bible and specifically in the New Testament was very, very different than the context of slavery in America in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. For starters, in biblical times, Slavery was never race-based. I'll say that again. Slavery was not based on race. Rather, the few slaves who worked in palaces or temples would have been captives of war. And the overwhelming majority of slaves were people who had defaulted on their debts, who were in debt to their debtors, or who as indigents resorted to self-sale to survive for a period of time, for a set and limited period of time. And generally these people functioned more as domestic servants rather than as agricultural or industrial labor, a labor force for a whole society. In contrast, slavery in the United States involved the capturing of innocent, minding their own business, men, women, and children in West Africa, holding them in so-called factories like prisoners of war, criminals, cattle, animals, until they could be sold to traders from the Americas, boarded onto their ships, crammed in on top of each other in the bowels of rancid ships where they would be transported for a period of weeks and sometimes months in horrid and diseased conditions packed on top of each other in the heat with not enough to eat where they could eventually be unloaded, the 80% of them who survived that journey, only to be sold at auction to the highest bidder. It's estimated that between 10 million and 12 million Africans 
were brought to the Americas against their will and in subhuman conditions to be used and abused for the duration of their useful lives. With no hope of freedom being separated randomly and regularly from their children, from their parents, from their spouses, from their family, from their loved ones. Not being allowed to learn or to read, having no rights at all. And so a very different experience of slavery than what was happening in Ephesus where again Paul writes, Slaves and masters, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Serve wholeheartedly, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. And this, indeed the scriptures do not explicitly condemn the practice of slavery. Though elsewhere the apostle Paul wrote that if a slave could obtain his freedom that would be good. But he did not condemn the practice of slavery as it was at that time. But nor was slavery, the slavery of Ephesus, anything remotely like the slavery of America. In other words, America's original sin. Moreover, read, see, hear, listen to the truly radical words that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens to the Christians in Ephesus. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Masters, treat your slaves with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Do not threaten them. In contrast, many, many white Christians in America as early as the 1620s read the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians as not condemning the practice of slavery, not understanding or maybe not caring to understand the differences in the practices of slavery between Paul's time and their time, and thus assuming generally that if slavery was permitted in the Bible and that Paul did not condemn it, then it was certainly okay for them to be okay with the practice of slavery in their time and even to hold their own slaves themselves. And so we see surface again the very human nature to the inclination to read the Bible or anything for that matter through a lens that favors an interpretation that is beneficial to me, that is convenient for me. As articulated in the biblical and particularly reformed doctrine of total depravity, which the prophet Jeremiah refers to with these words, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And not just my heart and not just your heart, but all of our hearts have always been and continue to be deceitful, self-focused, inclined to accept untruth or injustice if and as it benefits me, us, in some way, in and as it is convenient to hear, to understand, to believe in a certain way. And now some would ask, how does all of this pertain to me though, today? How does all of this pertain to you? 
Slavery is no longer an issue in our culture, nation, context. In the fall of 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that went into effect on January 1st, 1863, effectively freeing most of the approximately four million slaves held in the southern states at that time. So what does all of this from Ephesians have to do with you and me today? Well, the seminal event in the history of the Jewish people, the seminal event in the history of the Jewish people was not creation or the fall or the flood or the ark or God's covenant with Abraham or the circumcision of Isaac or the giving of the law on Mount Sinai or the construction of the tabernacle or even the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land or the crowning of David or the building of Solomon's temple or even their return from exile, but rather the Hebrew people's liberation from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and their being led out of slavery into freedom by God and God's grace. For us Christians, the twofold seminal event of our faith is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. But for Jewish people, the exodus or their liberation from 400 years of slavery was and remains the foremost historical event through which God saved them and so is memorialized in their annual Passover feast and celebration and in their feast of weeks to this day. Fast forward now more than 3,000 years from then. For 250 years, people from Africa or people whose ancestors were from Africa or simply black people were solely because of the color of their skin, their pigment, held as slaves in America, owned by Americans. And even after they were officially emancipated, they continued to be held, restrained, oppressed, not given many basic human rights that other Americans enjoyed for another hundred years and longer. And in some ways still, including at the hands of Christians and a historically too often silent and so complicit church. So important to their identity and their understanding of God's rescuing faithfulness in their lives was the Jews' liberation from 400 years of slavery in Egypt that they continued to memorialize that event, freedom from slavery in Egypt, 3,500 years later. But black people in America, black Americans, have never, I would argue, been able to fully do that same thing in that same way. The Hebrew people walked out of Egypt one night under the cover of darkness, guided by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. And they were free. Free indeed. Completely free. But the exodus of Africans and people of African descent from slavery, oppression, persecution, prejudice, racism wasn't and hasn't been nearly as swift, total, complete, because they did not and they could not return to their own land. And they had no promised land to go to, but instead continued to live in the presence of and under the often merciless thumbs of those who had owned them for hundreds of years. giving hundreds of years of white American Christians the benefit of the doubt. 
their misunderstanding of the scriptures and their misapplication of the word of God, including specifically the Apostle Paul's words to the Ephesians. Their misunderstanding of scripture and their misapplication of God's word for their own benefit, for their own economic gain, to reaffirm what they wanted to be true as we human beings are inclined to do, continues to this day as ripples of inequality, injustice, division, and hate that continue to poison the soul of our nation. There is not in Paul's words to the Ephesians even a hint, much less an endorsement, of the sort of cruel, ruthless, inhumane, merciless treatment of fellow human beings that that existed and was perpetrated broadly and legally on American soil for hundreds of years by white people and which continues to taint the DNA of our nation, of us as a nation. Throughout the period of slavery in America, Christian evangelists and pastors invited African slaves to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, to receive Jesus into their hearts, to be converted, but only with the understanding and sometimes explicitly with having them sign off on this, that though they are invited to the freedom from the law in Jesus Christ, they are not invited to freedom from their chains and shackles in which they were currently bound. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But those slaves in America were encouraged to know this truth. They were not permitted to be free. And this went on for centuries. After the Holocaust in Germany, eventually, years later, The German government resolving, understanding what they had done and their responsibility, culpability, grief, made a variety of sorts of reparations to the country of it, to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel, to Jewish individuals for a number of years in different ways. After the United States put into internment camps in the United States, Japanese Americans for two, three years, and let them go. The United States made reparations of $20,000 per person for each of those people. In a variety of ways, after land was taken from Native Americans, the United States government helped pay back or compensate Native Americans in a variety of ways for the land that had been taken from them. But such has never happened, never did happen, with African Americans, with slaves. In fact, there were reparations. Abraham Lincoln, while president, about the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, wrote and signed up an edict that said, essentially, all people in the District of Columbia who had held slaves would be compensated for their slaves that were forced to now be free. The reparations went not to the slaves, but to the slave owners. Forgetting that we ourselves have been recipients of God's grace, the attitude of many toward former slaves and black Americans since the emancipation has been, pull up your bootstraps like the rest of us. But most of the slaves didn't even have boots, much less a basic education or any connections. And that left generation after generation after generation of former slaves effectively bound as poor and indebted sharecroppers to their former owners. 
still indebted. Nothing was given to them, ever. But read from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 15. And if any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and Lord God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Remarkable. Supply them liberally, those who have served you. Because you once were slaves yourself in Egypt. There are many minority groups in America. People have immigrated here from many countries, but only the men, women, and children from West Africa who ended up as slaves were brought here against their will with no opportunity at all. Immigrants have often done the hard work that Americans didn't want to do over the course of our history. Immigrant people have often been ostracized, pushed to the perimeter, held at arm's length, even segregated. But none of them have had the experience of the people brought here from West Africa and enslaved for centuries. This has been America. The evil practice of lynching has only gone one direction in American history. Not black people lynching white people ever. But white people lynching black people by thousands through our history as vigilante justice, as scare tactics, as means of simply being cruel and sometimes even for evil entertainment. When this sanctuary, the room in which I stand in which we worship was built. Black people couldn't buy a home in this neighborhood because of a practice called redlining that has been carried on very explicitly early in this century or in the 20th century and continue to carry on in more subtle ways to this day across America. On June 17, 2015, a young white supremacist named Dylan Roof walked into a Bible study at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the oldest historically black congregations in the United States, and he shot 12 people because they were black, nine of whom died because of their wounds. It doesn't happen the other way in America. On February 23, 2020 this year, an unarmed young black man was walking down a neighborhood street in Glynn County, Georgia, minding his own business when he was confronted by three white men in broad daylight, one of them who eventually shot and killed him with a shotgun at close range because he was, as one of the men said, a N-word. The KKK continues to exist in this country. Mothers of black sons still have to worry when their boys go out. The NBA, the National Basketball Association, has during this season probably more than any organization explicitly made a statement about the need for racial justice 
in our nation, in our world. And the most powerful man in the world, because of that, has called him, quote, dumb and nasty. A mayor in the United States this week declared the vice presidential candidate to be just another Aunt Jemima. The resident of the White House promoted an idea that that same woman maybe wasn't born in the United States after all and therefore is not a citizen of the United States and not one of us. All lives don't matter until all black lives matter just the same. Pastor and teacher Brian Zan said this week that he noted, what many others have, that how a person reacts to the Black Lives Matters movement today is very similar to how that same person, you or me, would have reacted to Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. A movement and a person who, by all standards, was quite unpopular with most of America. What does this have to do with you and me? I would say that in some ways we also are infected, and probably all of us, or at least I am, by a subtle racism in which we grew up in various ways, in various degrees, in various different places but nevertheless a part of our DNA as individuals and as a nation. And as a church, we are complicit. What do we do? How do we respond? We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do we mean it on earth in our place as it is in heaven? where the biblical idea of justice is carried out and love is supreme. Several things we can do, acknowledge, confess, repent. That's the beginning point in the scriptures always, to acknowledge the truth, to confess our sin as individuals and as a nation and to repent, to turn, to go the other way actively. Not just to have a change of heart, but to have a change of life and mind. Second, during the season, we can obviously vote and take advantage of the freedom and the joy that we have in voting and expressing what we feel to be God's way through the ballot box. And third is to love one another. There's been a lot of talk this past week about who is on God's side, about who are true Christians, about what it is that makes a person a true Christian and not a true Christian. And without getting too much into politics, Jesus keeps it pretty simple. 
when asked what the synthesis of all of the law and the scriptures is, he said, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as a part of that and connected to that, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's an action. It's a commitment. It's a way. To be as generous with other people as we want them to be to us. To be as merciful with other people as we want them to be with us and as God, and as God has been with us. To be as kind to other people as we would hope that they would be to us. To love our neighbors, all of our neighbors. All of our neighbors. As we would hope to be loved. Jesus kept it simple. It is beyond me how Americans missed that for hundreds of years with regard to slaves and people from West Africa. I don't know. I don't know how so many of us, so many white American Christians over the centuries, missed that in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, and in some ways still today. But I am sure that God has not given up on us or his kingdom. I am sure that Paul meant what he said when he wrote, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. In Christ, we who live by his name and depend on his cross and whose only hope is his resurrection and who are filled with his spirit have one way and only one way to live our lives. And that is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. To love our blank neighbors and our blank neighbors, our blank neighbors and our blank neighbors. To love anyone who could be considered in the broadest definition a neighbor. May God give us the strength and the will and the heart and the courage to love as he loved us. And his kingdom will come in this nation, in our community, in our lives, in our homes, and in our hearts. It will come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. We confess the sin of our nation, God, which we don't want to own and we must own. We confess the sin of the church, which we don't want to own personally, but we must own if we are to be a part of it. We confess the sin of our families and our households and our hearts and our own minds. I confess my sin and the prejudice within, the biases, the ways of seeing things that are convenient for me, the ways of embracing what I want to embrace rather than following in the steps of the Lord Jesus. Heal us, redeem us, reconcile us to, our, to one another and to yourself. And fill us with the joy of your life and your kingdom. And may your name be glorified, and may your people be satisfied, now and forever. Amen.